Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, no language, where the voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and the words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven, and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise and simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from my secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Matthew and I had a, a real treat on Thursday. We were busy working away uh, in the office, and there was a knock on the door. And uh, Pauline Dillon came and invited us to the Thursday Lunch Club, which, if you are newish to the church, is a club for those who are older than Matthew and I would normally qualify for. And uh, the opportunity to have lunch with a good number of you and to spend time talking to you was a real treat, not least the salmon fillets that Pete and Rob had prepared for us. And if you're in that category, can I encourage you to make the most of that opportunity? It's a really lovely time. Um, we were able, Matthew and I, to sit next to uh, the Gregsons, but also Richard and Pauline Higginbottom, who many of you will know, were with us for a, a number of years, uh, now worshipping with the church in St. Paul's, and were invited back to share something of their life story. I wasn't able to stay for their presentation, and those of you who were know that what I heard over lunch was a preview of what they were going to share. They were going to share something of their wonder and their love for creation and the wonderful ways that you can explain the greatness of God and the mercy of God as you look into the world. That was buzzing in my head all of Thursday. Now, many of you are counting down the days until your summer holiday. And apart from being concerned about long queues and the fear of cancelled flights, a good number of you are looking forward to getting out to other parts of God's world and seeing something more of his wonderful creation. So before you jump on your plane, and after Richard and Pauline had freshly inspired my heart to think about the wonder of creation, I thought it would be good for all of us to have Psalm 19 ringing in our ears. It's one of my favorite psalms, and I know it's a, a favorite of many people. It's a favorite psalm, if you didn't know, of C.S. Lewis, who described it as the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics 
in the world, which is saying something given that he was a professor of literature at Oxford and Cambridge University. Poetically, it's beautiful, but spiritually, it's breathtaking. Breathtaking not only because it tries to describe something of of the sheer size and scale of creation, and not only because it describes all of that as having been made by God. It is breathtaking because David reminds us God made it for a reason. God is speaking through creation. God is speaking through his word. And God is speaking to change us. That's what I want us to think about this morning. God, first of all, is speaking through creation. We had a birthday in our house this week. And for all of you who've got kids in school, it was the end of term. So there was a lot of card making going on in our house. And one of the lovely things about homemade cards is they give you a window into the insight, the creativity, the thoughtfulness of the person that gives the card. Because what you make shows us something about who you are. Same is true of God. Only he doesn't make cards. He makes universes. If you get away from the light pollution at some point this summer and you get to lift your eyes up into a cloudless sky, your eyes will see more stars than you can count. Astronomers tell us that there are something like 100,000 million stars in our galaxy alone. Beyond that, there are millions and millions of other galaxies, each of which have thousands of millions of stars in each of them. And if you've been following the news this week, you will have seen something of those images from uh, the new James Webb Space Telescope, which is just feeding astrologers and scientists with more information than they really know what to do with. They're suddenly seeing disk galaxies in a way that they have never, ever seen before, even for men and women who vocationally have dedicated their lives to the study of space A new window that enables them to see further is showing them more than they ever thought possible. Creation is breathtaking. And God's design over all of it is endlessly fascinating. I um, learned about the the magnetosphere this week. Has Has anybody else heard of the magnetosphere? I'm always slow to the party. Uh, The magnetosphere is what scientists call this um, magnetic field that surrounds the Earth that is up to 36,000 miles into space. And its purpose is to deflect the vast majority of the harmful, damaging particles of solar wind in space and to deflect it into these um, uh, radiation belts around our planet. But some of these dust particles break into our atmosphere and they funnel down in the North and South Pole to create the Northern and Southern lights. I just think about the complexity and the wonder of all of that. Our God is such a phenomenal electrical engineer that he designed the magnetosphere to protect our planet in such a way that makes beauty. Isn't creation amazing? 
Why did he make it so big and so beautiful? It's made like that as human cards tell us something of the creator to tell us about him. David tells us, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. Knowledge about the existence and the greatness and the glory of God. Well, know how glorious God is? 100,000 million stars in our galaxy with millions upon millions of other galaxies and hundreds of thousands of millions of stars in each of those. And you flip back to Genesis chapter 1 and remind ourselves of how much effort it took God to make them. Day four of creation, God has made the sun and the moon for light and to mark the seasons. And then there's my favorite throwaway line in the whole of the Bible. He also made the stars. The power and the glory of God. Creation is singing of his greatness and of his majesty. And in verses 4 to 6, David focuses in on the sun's role in this chorus of creation. And David's really deliberately focusing in on the sun. Because in his day, as in many, many eras of human history, the sun was recognized for its power and for its life-giving qualities. In fact, for so many nations and empires throughout human history, the sun has been worshipped. Think about civilizations from Babylon to India, from China to Africa, throughout the Egyptian, the Greco-Roman empires. People worshipped the sun, but not the people of God. Not the people of God, because we are reminded here that the sun is but a part of God's creation, that it's, it's as though it's been pitched in a tent that God has made in the heavens. See the greatness of the creator to put such a wonderful and essential part of our universe in a little tent on a pitch. And the sun joins creation declaring the glory of God. David compares the sun to a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, picturing the wedding day and all of the joy of knowing that this was the day upon which the bridegroom would marry the love of his life and all of his heart is filled with joy as he's dressed in all of his finery. Here's David capturing that image and saying that's what the sun is like. Rising, as it were, humanly speaking, not because the sun doesn't go around, sorry, the earth doesn't go around the sun, but because in our experience, the sun rises in the morning and spans over the course. And David is saying it's like a groom who has a day to delight in the wonder of being able to enjoy the privilege of being married. But it doesn't stop there. He pictures the sun like a champion or a runner rejoicing to run his course. When I first dug into this psalm many years ago, I found a lovely illustration from John Piper to try and capture what this glory means in the context of a runner. And he, he refers to Eric Liddell running in the 1924 Paris Olympics. And if you know the story of Eric Liddell, who was a Christian, he'd trained for these Olympics for the 100 meters. But the final, or maybe the qualifying, forgive me, I can't remember the detail, was on a Sunday and he wouldn't run on the Lord's Day. But as such a gifted athlete, there was an opportunity for him to qualify for and run in the 400 meters 
which remarkably he managed to get into the final four, despite having not been training for it. And there he is in the final. If you've seen Chariots of Fire, you can picture the scene. He's, he's on the outside lane because of his time, and he's clutching a note that was written by his masseur that was quoting 1 Samuel 2 that said, He who honors me, I will honor. And there is little on the outside lane waiting for the gun. And it goes. And he runs. That back bend and that back straight like he was running 100 meters. He'd gone faster than anybody thought you could possibly sustain. And in his unique running style, you remember, he, he ran upwards with his head looking towards the heavens. He just kept going. The whole of the stadium is on their feet, cheering for this man, knowing everything that had been going on. And Piper says, it's as though glory, glory is coming up from this atmosphere. And this is what is being described here. David is saying every single day the sun begins its journey rising from one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other to declare the glory of God to the whole of creation, the whole of it, the whole of our our world. Because David says nothing is deprived of its warmth, which is literally true in the sense that every corner of our spherical planet is blessed by the warmth of the sun. But David's getting at more than that. He's saying every single part of our world is experiencing the testimony of the Son to the glory of God. But but our Bible and our experience tell us that there is something wrong with creation's song. There's both a problem and a paradox. And maybe you've been thinking about the problem. As we've been thinking, you see, for all of the beautiful rainbows that we see in our world, we see pictures of the devastation wrought by hurricanes. For every beautiful sunset at the end of a day that you delight in, especially in the summer months, you know that there is carnage that has been brought because of tsunamis. I mean, even in our country, during the course of this week, we saw grass fires because of the heat in our world. You, you see all of this going on. There is a problem with creation's song, but there's also a paradox. If you look in verse 3, speaking of the testimony of the heavens and of the skies, they have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Look at those first few verses in the psalm. For all that creation is, is declaring and proclaiming and pouring forth speech and revealing knowledge doesn't have any words. The stars, the expanse, the wonder of all of creation can tell us something of the existence and the glory and the majesty of God, but creation can't tell us the person of God. Creation cannot tell us how to be made right before God. Creation can't tell us how to have a relationship with this God. And that's why David shifts gears. And he turns from speaking about God's general revelation in creation from verse 7 onwards to his special revelation in his word. God doesn't only speak through creation. God is speaking through his word. And in verses uh, 7, 8, 9, 10, God inspired David to use all sorts of different synonyms to describe the wonder of God's world. Here's a table to 
just help you consolidate all of the information that's here and give you a list of all of those different synonyms and then what they are described as, if it's possible to have the next slide. Sorry if you're struggling. Thank you so much. So there's all of the different ways that David is trying to use the human vocabulary to describe all of what is being described here in this psalm. And, and what David is stretching us to see is how comprehensively good God's word is from every single way that you think about it. Now, we can't go through every little detail this morning. I want you to see three big ideas that David is showing us in all of these. The first is that God's word brings life. Verse 7, it revives the soul, so much so that if you respond to God's word and believe in what it says, verse 9, it enables us to endure forever. That's the kind of life that is being described here. And out of that new life, verses 7 and 8, God's word gives wisdom. That's what we see in the next little section. There's language here that if you were with us when we went through Proverbs, it sounds kind of proverbial, doesn't it? Um, That God's statutes make wise the simple and give light to the eyes. Now, perhaps you're here for the first time. You don't really know a great deal about all of the detail of what the Bible teaches. And in your mind... All you know about Christians is they're people of the Bible and they're quite religious. And maybe you think it's all about rule keeping and it's all joyless and lifeless and all about strictness. What does David tell us? Tells us that God's word, verses 8 and 10, gives joy. Real, heartwarming, life-giving, eternal joy. So much joy that there is joy here that is better than anything else in all the world. David says, you could take all the gold in the world. I wouldn't trade it for the truth of knowing the Bible. You could give me all the honey in the world, not just referring to the sweetness of one particular meal, but a delicacy delicacy to capture all of the good gifts of God in the world. You say none of them in all of their beauty compare with his word. And our problem, if we're honest, is that all too often we either forget to turn to it, or we forget what it is we're turning to. Just thought about life, wisdom, and joy. How many people, not only in this room, but in our neighborhoods, towns, are searching for a genuine hope in this life? One that cannot be taken away from anybody. How many people are longing for guidance? Because there's lots of tricky things to navigate in life, but would rather Google and gossip than come to the guidance of God's word. How many are dry, like desert dry, longing for joy? And what Matthew reminded us from Psalm 16 is that the journey to joy is a journey towards the God of his word. It says we discover and delight in him that we find the wonder of joy being given to us. And David's describing that God's word is where we find life and wisdom and joy and, and a complete explanation of why the world is it it is. An explanation of the fact that God created a perfect world. But in the rebellion of men and women against God, our sin, our rebellion has now created all of the hard struggle and difficulty in the created world. 
fact, so much so that the Apostle Paul would say that the whole of creation is waiting to be liberated from its bondage to decay. The Bible tells us why there are rainbows and tornadoes, why there are sunsets and tsunamis. But the Bible gives us more than an explanation of the world that we live in. The Bible tells us that the God of heaven longs for us to know him personally. And we see that in the way that the names David uses change in the psalm. You look in verse 1, David describes God as, or uses the name God. In Hebrew, Elohim, it describes the greatness and the power and the majesty of God. And that's what you get when you look at verses 1 to 6. But the name changes in verse 7. David starts describing God as Lord, translating Yahweh, what Matthew reminded us last week is that personal covenantal name of God that is not revealed in the stars. That's revealed in Scripture. And that is David's great hope in this psalm. Because yes, God is speaking through creation. And yes, God is speaking through his word. But God is speaking to change us. Now, the NIV misses the linking word in the beginning of verse 11. Uh, it was picked up helpfully in the translation that Arthur read from. If you've got the ESV or some other versions, you may have in verse 11, it begins with the word moreover, which is there in the Hebrew. We've just lost it in our NIV translation. Moreover, by them, the scriptures, is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. David's trying to tell us that in addition to everything he's just said about God's word that gives life and wisdom and joy, moreover. By them is your servant warned. Thought about the sun bringing light into creation. We know that God's word gives light into our hearts that we would see ourselves for who we truly are. But God's word also functions like a mirror. That we would see ourselves in the light of the perfect standard of the moral law of God. And recognize that we are sinful people. Before this all-powerful, creator, majestic, holy God. And so, here is David reminding himself of, of just what it reveals. Verse 13, not only that he has sinned willfully by his own choosing, but verse 12, he realized that his life was full of hidden faults. Hidden sins too. Now, I think you could take that in legitimately in two ways. He, he might be thinking about hidden sins that other people don't know about. But each of us also know that our life is more full of sin than we ourselves know. There's extent to which our sinfulness is hidden even from ourselves. Because we don't fully understand the majesty, the glory of God, and by comparison, our own sinfulness. And if we could just pause here for one minute, there's an important lesson not to miss here. Because as we read God's word more and more, and it functions both as a light and as a mirror into our lives, as Christians, we are exposed to more and more of our sin. And at every moment that we are, we are to confess something that we've not perhaps seen or known about before and know that God graciously promises to forgive. But it can be tempting in that process to get lost in the spiral and to think that there is more sin in my heart that I don't know about that I haven't confessed. And you can get lost thinking, 
Well, what if I haven't confessed that sin that I haven't yet discovered? And what David so helpfully shows us here is how we should respond to that. See, David confesses all of the sin that he knows. But then of the sin that he isn't aware of, he doesn't ask God to reveal it to him so that then he can confess it. Thinking that unless I have individually confessed for every single sin and asked for forgiveness, God can't forgive my hidden faults. That would turn salvation from grace to works. What David does here is he shows us that we are to ask God for forgiveness for all of our known sins, for all of our hidden sins, and to trust that he forgives. Which incredibly is what David himself knew. You look in verse, the end of verse 13. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. And his psalm finishes with this lovely prayer, this benediction. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That word pleasing, or, or it might say acceptable in your translation, it's the same word that repeats again and again and again through the Mosaic law. Through the laws, it described how perfect a sacrifice needed to be if it could be offered to God. Um, if you turn, don't know if you haven't got a Bible in front of you, uh, Leviticus chapter 22. Um, we're reminded of how perfect every sacrifice needed to be. The Lord said to Moses, speak to Aaron and his sons, they're the Levites and the priests, and to all the Israelites and say to them, if any of you, whether in Israel or a foreigner residing in Israel, presents a gift for a burnt offering to the Lord, either to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering, you must present a male without defect from the cattle, sheep or goats in order that it may be accepted on your behalf. That's the kind of language that David is using here. And if you know David's life story, you will know that his life was absolutely not without defect. In fact, in one season of his life, he lied in order to protect his laziness, which had resulted in him committing adultery that led to him committing murder. And here he says, at the end of Psalm 19, Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May my words and meditation be pleasing in your sight. David's life is full of defects. How is it possible that David could think of this level of forgiveness? It's because with the Spirit's help, David was looking forward by faith to see the final sacrifice. Now, who is Jesus? What did we learn at the beginning of our series in John's Gospel? Jesus is the one through whom all of creation was made. Then we discovered that Jesus himself is the living word of God. He is in all of his glory and summation, all that Psalm 19 is pointing us towards. And he lived the perfect life, the blameless life, to be the acceptable and pleasing sacrifice so that he could take our place on the cross and be the one who would receive all the just punishment of God for our sin. God is speaking to change us by pointing us to Jesus. And that, verse 11, is the great reward that David is looking forward to. He's not longing for health, wealth, and happiness. He's seen the riches of the world. He's seen the honey and the honeycomb. He knows that the greatest gift in all the world is to know the forgiveness of God and that sinful people are right before him. 
Which is why he finishes this psalm with this lovely reference to God, the Lord, the covenant Lord, being my rock and my redeemer. David knew what we know, which is that we cannot stand before God on the foundation of our good works. David knew that there had to be a perfect redeemer who would buy our salvation through the sacrifice of his perfect life and his death upon the cross. And now... What does Psalm 19 mean for you and me this morning? What does all of that mean for us? Well, if you think about what it tells us about creation, I hope and pray that as you go out onto your summer holidays and and just enjoy the next few weeks, wherever you're able to do that, you would know Psalm 19 turning your wonder into worship. When you think about the scriptures and what God's word should mean for us, I hope and pray that you and me will come to God's word with that renewed expectation of hearing from the living God and from coming to it with that expectation of joy and of knowing that he is speaking words of life and wisdom and joy into your heart. But there are two other specific applications that we can't miss because Psalm 19 either leaves you with a great problem or a great challenge. There is no option three. If you are not yet a Christian, Psalm 19 presents you with a great problem. Because Paul tells us in his letter to the Romans that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Creation's testimony leaves every one of us without excuse. And whether this is the first time you've been in a church and heard anything of what the Bible has to teach or whether you've heard 800 sermons in the course of your life, you have now heard that it is only possible to be made right before the God of heaven by trusting in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to do what none of us could do. So if you're not yet trusting in him, please can I encourage you even this morning to not continue Turning your back on the creator. He has given you all of creation to see the existence, the glory and the majesty of God. And he has given us his word so that you would know him personally. And if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of your sins, as those who have recently been baptized have done, you can know and relate to him for yourself. But for those of us who trusted in Jesus perhaps many years ago, Psalm 19 gives us a great challenge. Because the world has no excuse. And creation is not sufficient for men and women to come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single day as the sun rises, lights up the world and sets Our non-Christian neighbors, 
and friends, our non-Christian family members, the people that you're going to meet at the Lillington Fun Day, the people that you might bump into on camp, on your summer holidays, wherever you may be, are confronted with the reality of the existence and the glory of God. But they cannot know him and know the forgiveness of their sins without knowing about the Lord Jesus Christ. So can I encourage you, can I challenge myself and you this summer to pray that God would give you the courage and the words to speak, to share the gospel with at least one person this summer. That they would not left, be left looking only at the splendor of creation, wondering whether science or something else may explain it. But would know the God who has made it and who has spoken through creation and his word in order to change them.